0: Hello, and welcome to episode 160 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Brent McGoldrick, CEO of Deep Roots Analytics, a media analytics company, former managing director at FTI Consulting, and former director of advertising analytics for Romney for president. Mr. McGoldrick is also a former vice president with Edelman. Brent, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Excellent. The first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why?
1: Well, um, I I think I advance the public interest every day. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up as a political junkie. Mm -hmm. I was always interested in history and politics. Mm -hmm. I always knew that in some shape or form, that I would work uh in politics uh, I wasn't exactly sure what uh-huh, and so in college, I had one of these moments where I was in a class, and that class i went to it was an undergrad at Duke University, yeah, and that class is taught by Peter Hart and Peter Hart is one of the uh, most famous democratic pollsters hmm. that there is, and I had never knew that polling was a career mm-hmm. I knew there were people who did it um but I didn't really think of it as a career. Right? Yeah. Like, I would see charts in Time Magazine around what people thought about the but how did they get there? How would that chart get there? Yeah. Right? So that was always... So I took this class, and I sat there and I said, that's, that's fascinating to me. What people think, quantifying it, and essentially quantifying what people think and what they want and why they want it, and... And that to me, that, that fusion of um, public opinion research and politics, mm-hmm. that's essentially where I found my calling. And so anything that I've done in my career, I've been doing this now for 20 years in various iterations, has all been rooted in that notion of understanding what the American public feels, thinks, wants. So to answer your question, how do you advance the public interest, Mm -hmm. I think I do it and have done it and I've always gravitated towards it in some way, shape, or form in and around how can I bring the voice of what it is that people want, Mm -hmm. expect, need, and how do you then apply that to a set of communications decisions or advertising decisions that or outreach, or messages, So, so it's, it's an
0: indirect way. So the intersection of opinion and politics, which yeah. is how you describe your career, seems to also very well fit both capitalism and democracy, right? Because in a capitalist framework, you're trying to sell products to consumers based on what consumers want. And in democracy, you're trying to have a government that's similarly responsive to consumers, in this case being citizens, trying to deliver this sort of government that people want. Does that sound like an appropriate analogy for what you do and how it works within those two frameworks? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, if you look at who I've done this for, right?
1: Mm-hmm. So ultimately, when you do this kind of research, someone needs to pay for it, right? Right. It can be a foundation, it can be a nonprofit, but more likely than not, it's a company or it's a political campaign. So um, I have used the, the 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 sort of approach that I've described to do everything from literally help identify a yogurt. Uh-huh. Why people buy their particular product yeah. to everything to uh, a politician or a campaign? It's all human behavior, and it's what people expect and uh-huh. what they want, uh-huh.
0: and their likelihood to then purchase on some basis. So yes. So there's this new revolution both in politics and in unrelated private sector fields mm-hmm. called big data. Yes. And you are, and correct me if I'm wrong, in a in a world where you deal with big data. Yes. So how does big data obviously you said that polling's been around for some yes. time. Big data is has not been around as long. So how what is the impact? First of all, what is big data and how does it impact what you do? What is what are what insights are you gleaning from this big data? Yeah. So I would I would I would draw a distinction
1: between traditional public opinion and consumer research, mm-hmm. which is asking the consumer or the voter what it is they want, mm-hmm. what's important to them, mm-hmm. you know, and getting them to tell you, which is an invaluable tool, but it is one tool. I would draw a distinction between that and big data, how we come to know big data. So big data is defined as what? It's defined as data based on something that's based on the velocity, mm-hmm. right, at which it's being gathered or correct, collected. Mm-hmm. You know, the size of the uh, databases or the data sets that we're talking about. So we're not talking about necessarily about N of 1,000 polls. We're talking about millions and millions of observations. Mm-hmm. Okay? And then the third hallmark, I would say, of big data is that it doesn't have to be, but it's more often than not sort of fundamentally behavioral as opposed to attitudinal. Right? Mm-hmm. Surveys are attitudinal, what I think, what I believe, what yeah. I value. Right. When we talk about big data behaviorally, we're talking about What do people check out at the supermarket? What do they watch on TV? What do I think I want versus what I actually demonstrate with my actions? Yes. Now, the two of those are important because you don't just market to people based on behavior. There is – I think we've gone the other way in the last three or four years of big data where Mm -hmm. we've got ad agencies and campaigns Mm -hmm. and marketers who are focused on, well, I only care about what people – and I think that, that misses the boat as well, right? Which is like we need to appeal to people based on what it is they value and care about, which is often not necessarily the way they act. So you need both. Yeah, hmm. You need both.
0: So, you've, but, so you're now a CEO of your own – is this is this a company? Are you the founder? You started this company?
1: I was one of them,
0: yes. One of the founders. Yeah. You're a CEO as an entrepreneur yes. of your own analytics company. But, of course, you had many positions before that. So how do we get – from being inspired in North Carolina by a Democrat, and are you a Democrat? I'm not a Democrat. What I, are
1: you? I am, I, I am not, and I, ne- I feel like I'm a hearing. I am not, and I've never been a Democrat. And I'm
0: so, a Republican. So you're a Republican yeah. strategist. So how is it that you get from being inspired yeah. by somebody with whom you don't politically identify yes. to being where we are today? Great question. Well, First of all, there's 20 years there. Yeah. So not
1: happen <laughs> overnight. But what I would say is that, um, you know, look, I, 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 let's take Peter Hart. So I, I saw in what Peter Hart was doing, the, first of all, the, the passion, the intellectual rigor, um, uh, the, um, both the analytical as well as the creative approach that he took mm-hmm. to that career and how he talked about it and the work that he did. Mm-hmm. And to me and to most people who work in Washington and mm-hmm. work in this area – you know, the party label is important only to a point, you know. Mm-hmm. Nothing he was saying was necessarily ideological or partisan. Mm-hmm. He was basically talking about a craft, talking about a, a skill set, talking mm-hmm. about a career mm-hmm. that really I found appealing. Um, so it just so happened he happened to be, you know, a Democrat. And, um, um, you still keep not touch to him at all? Um, I have over the years. Um, I saw him at a wedding probably less than 10 years ago and talked to him and, went out to him and reminded him specifically that I got into this because of him and he said something to the effect of well obviously I didn't do a good enough job because you chose the wrong side but
0: um, was he being facetious uh, half (laughs) like like any
1: good joke it was sort of half serious and half funny Um, so yeah look I I I got out of school I started in political polling Mm -hmm. uh, working for a firm called public opinion strategies and a great mentor Neil Newhouse who uh, actually works at Peter Hart and a lot of things I went to work for Neil on Uh, on the Romney for president campaign and Neil was at my wedding. So, so, you know, it it was one of these things where I got out of college. I knew that's what I wanted to do based on Peter Hart's class. I found the Republican analog of Peter Hart and that was Neil Newhouse and went to work for Neil. And while I was at public opinion strategies was working on everything from campaigns to public affairs, uh, initiatives to companies. And that was sort of polling, and it was, at its uh, sort of most elemental level, which is writing surveys and questionnaires, Mm -hmm. conducting focus groups as well, so not just the quantitative, but Mm -hmm. the qualitative portion, and really getting a sense for what drives people, what they think about, what they care about, how they think, Um, and have continued that through its various iterations. And I would say, starting four or five years ago, like anyone who works in public opinion research and polling, Mm -hmm. I too began to say, listen, Big data is becoming more and more important. That's something I've got to apply more of my skill set to understanding more about and understanding its application and then ultimately running the company. So it's been, you know, it's been a fun career so far, 20 years of, of um, um, just some, some, some great clients and working on some great projects, but obviously taking on more responsibility along the way.
0: So talking about what drives people, clearly you're driven by figuring out what drives other yeah. people. That's something that's fascinating to you. How, do you. how would you say that figuring out answers to that question, what drives people, how is that advancing to public interest? Why is that something that's worth figuring out? Why don't we just produce a burger and sell the burger? Why do we need to find out what drives them? Well,
1: I think that fundamentally people are, people are fundamentally emotional beings, right? Um, they have a set of experiences that um, are their own, that are unique to them um, people grow up differently, they have different influences, they have different interests, they have different behaviors um, and like I said they exhibit themselves emotionally differently so uh, again I think this is the, the sort of um, you know capitalist uh, in me as well as the Republican mm-hmm. is that um, Look, I, I think that the more the market, mm-hmm. whether that's the market for politics or goods and services, is responsive to what it is that people want mm-hmm. in general, mm-hmm. the better off we are. Right? The exercise of free choice is important. Um, having a a having a a market in which the providers of those goods, services, ideas, policies better understand what it is that people want and
0: what drives them is a good thing. So let's get a little more concrete. It's often been le- leveled uh, at, at Democrats that they are too stuck in logic or, or appeals to the intellect. And it's, it's sometimes been said that Republicans, uh, writ large, have been better able for the last few decades to appeal to emotion. Of course, a big exception would be 2008 with Barack Obama. Can you speak a little bit about your experience on the Romney campaign and how you balance appeal to voters from an emotional, uh, I guess, center focus point? So I I guess the first is I would,
1: I'm familiar with, uh, I, I think that, that label that, that maybe Republicans appeal on a more emotional basis, Democrats appeal on a more rational basis. I, I think I'm familiar with that. I, don't, I would disagree with that premise because I think that these things sort of run in cycles. right? I can remember a time when people would say, well the Republicans make a rational case around and they have no emotion uh, in, their, in, in their appeals or vice versa. So I think these things run in cycles and they're largely driven by the sort of politicians of the moment. Now, that said... I think that um, I think that, that one of the most difficult things in politics is to take an individual or a candidate and what they believe and what they want to do in their policy prescriptions and uh, because they, that comes from a place of uh, you know in order to run for office, you have to have a deep I mean, I give these men and women great credit on the other side of the aisle Mm -hmm. because that takes a lot of... That's just about a thirst for power. My experience with these men and women is that they deeply feel something about the direction of the country or their ability to influence it.
0: And so... Country or state or or municipality or... At
1: any level, right? And in fact, obviously, in some cases, often more passionately at the the, sort of the more local levels. And how you, as a campaign, take that Mm -hmm. and help them make a case that is a combination of rational and emotional, yeah? Because sometimes it's not just about your taxes went up or your taxes went down or this school policy is this or Mm -hmm. or education policy or what have you, but it's about um, what that person stands for and what voting for them stands for.
0: So what's the role of polling and analytics in shaping that story, in in creating a narrative for a candidate, for a party platform, or for a campaign. So I
1: I am going to humbly claim that our role is less about the crafting of that Mm -hmm. and more really about, it's really more the execution and really even more specifically resource allocation so one of the things when I was sitting in that class of Peter Hart 20 years ago mm-hmm. Bill Clinton was president and one of the big criticisms at the time in the sort of cultural zeitgeist of Clinton mm-hmm. was he didn't have a core political philosophy that this was all essentially micro targeting and splitting up people into small groups, and that there wasn't anything that he really
0: fundamentally cared about. And this was sort of about identifying who he could sell things to. That was
1: sort of the criticism. That's always
0: been the criticism. Oh, is that of, of his policies. administration or his campaign strategy that
1: led him to victory? Um, well, of his administration, because right. at that point it was then sort of executing on that for the purpose of re election, 96 and then 97. Mm-hmm. Um, um, my, however, I found in my career that it's it's often the opposite. I mean, it, there's very little that I've been able to do as either in polling or in analytics that can tell a campaign at any level what it is that they should care about, what it is that they should run on, what it is that they, It's really more about them saying, here's what I care about. These are the four or five things I care about. Now, you go find me
0: the best and
1: most efficient and effective way to communicate those things. That's really... So the
0: candidate has core values. The electorate has core values. You as a campaign staffer or consultant are charged with going to the electorate and figuring out how to connect their values to the candidate's values.
1: That's, That's a very good way to put it. It's either that or it's... How many
0: people out there share those
1: values? Is it enough to win an election? And if it isn't? And if it's not, is there a way I can translate how I think about it and care about it in terms that they care about? Yeah? And so oftentimes it is about taking an issue or a position
0: and trying to communicate, and that's a very hard thing to do. Can you give an example from the Romney campaign about, or from something else that you've worked on, where you've translated a message in order to make it appeal more broadly to the values that your research determined are aligned with the electorate? Uh,
1: I'll give you one that's actually about an, an industry mm-hmm. because, and because it's top of mind, and in some ways that's even more difficult. So, one of the things that we see in the, if you think about energy and the way we use energy, mm-hmm. and I'm going to paint with a broad brush, but let's say that, you know, if you're, let's say, your age, you're you're younger than me, mm-hmm. but there's a, there's a, there's an age. Let's say if you're a millennial, mm-hmm. you, um, millennials have become in some ways not your fault, sort of the way society is. I think completely separated from how energy is created and produced in this country. Okay, and what I mean by that is oil and gas, how it's extracted, how it actually becomes to fuel uh, the, the the home. And for a long time, the energy industry has, for the most part, sort of stayed away from that. You know, They, they recognize that the fuels are viewed as dirty, and people want uh, sort of green. and, and, and So just
0: to done translate done. what you're saying for our listeners, yeah. you're saying that a millennial may use his iPhone yeah. to tweet a criticism of carbon-based yeah, fuels, yet it was the carbon-based fuels that sourced the energy through his electrical socket that power his iPhone. Yes, and...
1: How can you uh, – and so, look, you can, have, you can have legitimate policy differences and critiques as to how energy should be produced in this country. However, work that I've done on behalf of the energy industry has been like, look, we have to – you can have that opinion, but we also have the right to communicate and remind you of how far we've come Yeah, in a short period of time. And so, one of the things we've done is: what do people value? People value innovation, mm-hmm. right? They care about constant by people. Sense of you progress.
0: mean the broader, broader yeah, population a, a or cool, the owners of the I, energy? Company. No, no, no. I would
1: say Americans. You think about Americans. So, if I if I'm charged with trying to develop a research program, mm-hmm. yeah, that is going to help explain mm-hmm. the role and the value that energy sources, various energy sources, play in your day to day life. Mm-hmm. Now, why do I want to do that? Have every right to critique and make your own decisions. But part of your thinking, mm-hmm. part of your mindset should be informed about, hey, how did this stuff actually get there? How did this can actually get So you're talking about
0: like an ExxonMobil or a BP, something like that, an Somewhere energy like, company.
1: Think, Yeah. Think of the, the industry in general. Okay. We're acting through a trade group. Okay. That says we need to we need to promote this this story a bit more. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so we know from research, we know from cultural from cultural observation that there are values that, in general, Americans share, right? right? They're impatient. They care about innovation, mm-hmm. right? They're on to the next thing. Go, mm-hmm. go, 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 go.
0: What's, you know, f- pushing frontiers. So if they see that your client is doing that, right. like, look, you may be producing fuel through coal, but look at these new... Scrubbers that we're putting on the smokestacks. There's that. There's also there, there's also saying to people, listen. Let
1: me take Let, let me condense ten thousand years of in thirty or sixty seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the great human advances in the last two three hundred years has been what? The ability to take natural sources of energy, oil, coal, natural gas, convert it into energy mm-hmm. to then power everything from, you know the NICU unit in a hospital mm-hmm. to and so so what's my job in that role my job is not to my job is not to convince people and beat them over the head or misalign them with their own values mm-hmm. it's to tap into a set of values that i know they have from research and to connect that with a set of facts right that the energy industry would love to communicate and get people to think about so that people do what so that they at least stop and think and that's part of their consideration set. Now, if you're extremely cynical about it, you would say, this is the oil industry, big oil basically trying to tell me to be happy with what it is that we have and dirty fuels. My response to that is, no. This is the energy industry saying, look, you want a cleaner future, you want energy sources that are produced in a more technologically advanced and ultimately environmentally beneficial way. The way to do that is we have to innovate. We don't go backwards. You know, we don't turn off what we know, Mm -hmm. sources of energy. We have to sort of innovate through this. We all have the same goal. So that would be an example there where I'm using research, data, analytics to take what I know about a a customer or a voter set of values, connect that to what I know that the industry can and should
0: be talking about, and then form a communication campaign. on So if I were to place a political lens over what you just said, Does it sound to you like you are approaching bipartisanship in the sense that there's an industry that is trying to survive, right? Self-perpetuate. And then you have people who maybe their initial gut reaction, at least before you're hired, is I don't really like that kind of more revulsion. And you're trying to take one group of people and another group of people who may not initially find common ground. And you're trying to say actually your objectives are aligned. Yeah, that sounds. If you were to take that from yeah. a political within a political context, it sounds bipartisan. So going off that conclusion, is it odd that you are identified as a Republican shop here at Deep Roots Analytics versus um, why not opening up for more business or you know if you're trying yeah, yeah. to find common ground? Could you deal dive into? Yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, I, I think.
1: I think, look, when it, the reality is that when it comes to electoral politics, mm-hmm. and that means um, ha- having a name next to a party affiliation on the ballot, mm-hmm. okay? the stone cold reality is that candidates are not going to hire firms that work for both parties. Yeah? Just doesn't happen. So there is, you do have to pick a side for the most part. There are some exceptions, but there are very few exceptions. If you are going to work in electoral politics, you have to pick a side. That's basically what it comes down to. Now, now let's let's put that aside for a second. When you're talking about issues, when you're talking about industries, when you're talking about organizations, we're not talking about now the binary choice at the ballot box. We're talking about trying to affect the mindset. Well,
0: can I challenge what you just said? Yes. So, do Republicans and Democrats both buy Google and Facebook ads? Sure. And do they both advertise in yeah. you know a local newspaper yeah. or TV station? But that so is what's a, the difference? The difference – well the difference to that is that is a a
1: transaction mm-hmm. that is completely devoid with all due respect to my friends at Google and Facebook, that is completely devoid of any advice, opinion, counsel. It's that a product. is it's like going to FedEx or executing a media buy by uploading a piece of creative and directing it via Facebook or Google or what have you. So it's the advice that's part of it. Well, let's think about it. It, It's it's two people in a courtroom, right, basically. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have the defense counsel working for the plaintiff and vice versa, sharing information. It's in the court of public opinion, in the election, that is a courtroom. You've got two sides to it. If I have no, you know, it's like defense lawyers don't often become plaintiff's lawyers. I mean, they may eventually make a switch, but that's why that doesn't happen.
0: Interesting. So I could, I could be on different teams using the same Office Depot stapler, no problem. And I could be using the same strategies with big data analytics, working for a blue or a red campaign. Sure. But I, I can't actually be both. That's right. Right. So it's kind of in the mentality because, what, I mean, what you're doing is probably not too different than what of democratic firms do. No. And we work with them all the time. In fact, our biggest competitors are not firms on the left. There are other firms on the right. That well, right, because you have markets – I mean, because yeah. you're, you're limited to this market. Yeah.
1: But let me give you an example, though. If, if, just let's leave the political – Sure. Aside. To your point, you mentioned something around connecting values. We have, and myself and a couple of our other partners here, have worked on four clients mm-hmm. in which they would. Um, so, one of my partners, Alex Lundry, has done a lot of work around same sex marriage and selling that to conservatives. Yeah? What was traditionally not a conservative Republican sort of issue position mm-hmm. and working to say, Let's use research to help identify, are there ways we can talk about this issue that appeals to a conservative set of values around family formation, around stability, Hmm. right? Same thing happens with everything from energy to – happens on the other side. If you'll remember, probably less than five, ten years ago, there was a lot of – there were some nascent movements between a lot of environmental green groups – and, and socially conservative Christian groups, right? Uh, we're, we're here to take care of the earth. It's God's creation. So there are many times in which research and analytics are used basically, as I was saying before, to connect a value set with an issue position. They don't always line up, but there are, there are interesting ways to do that. And when those things happen, we will often work with firms that are, quote, unquote, on the other side of the aisle, because what the client wants is to benefit from the wealth of experience. Like you guys have a direct wane of experience working for people. I want both of you firms together. Interesting. So now, let me just make one point. If you're, at, if you're sitting outside of Washington, if you're like where I grew up in North Carolina or where somebody grew up, you can either look at that as a good thing and uh-huh. say, oh, this is great. See, these people can get along around a set of values. Or you can look at that as some people do as this is part of the problem in which you have basically – these firms, who are Republican and Democratic firms, who are basically they work together. So. so anyway, it's, it presents its own interesting dynamic. One person's bipartisanship is another person's sort of unholy alliance collusion.
0: And, and yeah. just and just to finish up on that yeah. point, from that perspective in North Carolina, is that or, which is hypothetical sure. and it, it may not be representative at all of a single person down there. But just what you just Thank said, you yeah. <laughs> um, if someone were to view that as an unholy alliance, would that be viewed as, as a failure or a sacrifice or capitulating to the enemy? What, what's the mentality of, of that being about? I,
1: I, I think, and I, I've, I've brought this up in focus groups, so let me give voice to this where um, you recall during the Obama administration there was a significant amount of disagreement between Congress and the president. Uh And so I would ask people, they would say, this is a mess, these guys and gals can't get together and they can't work for the best interest of people. And I would say, okay, I'm going to give you a choice. Uh We can go back to this sort of mythical relationship of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan getting together Mm -hmm. and working on behalf of
0: people." For our listeners, Tip O'Neill was a Speaker of the United States House of Representatives in the 1980s. Who worked with President Ronald Reagan. Uh, we can go back to that, mm-hmm. okay? or we can have what we have now, which are basically two sides
1: that are principled, that are dig in and oppose each other. Which, life is not either or, but which would you prefer? And the more you dig into that, the more people actually are suspicious of quote-unquote both sides working together. Because it becomes, well wait, who determines the public interest that they are mutually agreed
0: upon? And so, so are you is, representing my interests or the interests of those other people who disagree with me? Exactly. And so, and so these things
1: get viewed with more and more suspicion. So while I,
0: I sympathize and, and I can hear
1: the, um, this sort of wistfulness for this bygone era in which people of both sides cooperated, the reality is the more you push people and you try to push people by meaning dig into their real opinions, the more they are suspicious of quote unquote, sort of the ruling class sort of working together. So anyway, this, uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not giving you any solutions. I'm just sort of pointing out that these are the things that, that, that sort of happen and this
0: is how people react to things like So we need to wrap up this podcast now. I'd like to ask you a final question, which is to reflect on why it is you've been doing what you're doing to advance the public interest as you or your clients construe it. What did it? What do you hope to have accomplished throughout the course of your career by having dedicated yourself to deep root analytics, to finding out what drives people? How have you made the world a better place through your work? And what? Why have you decided to go down this path? And what do you hope will be the end result, the end of your career, of you having tread this
1: path? Well, that's a big question to answer in a short period of time, but I'll give a shot anyway. I think, I think. Uh, I view as sort of my professional role as shedding light uh, to what it is that people fundamentally value and care about, want, and also expect, which is not something I've talked much about. But what people expect of their institutions, of their leaders, of products and services that they consume, people have expectations. And if I can shed light on that to a campaign, mm-hmm. to a company, to a brand, that's important. Because believe it or not, it is more often the case that people who sit around the quote-unquote big table mm-hmm. in a campaign, mm-hmm. in the halls of government, mm-hmm. or in a company, don't think enough about what it is that their employees, their consumers, and voters want and need. We on the outside think that they sit there all day and go through consumer polling data, but they're listening to each other. They're talking to themselves. They talk in a circle. It's a very insular world. And so what I hope to have accomplished is to bring the voice of people outside that and have that voice sit there at the table, yeah, in a quantitative way, in a way, a scientific way, in a way that people
0: take seriously. And listen to. So that has been Brent McGoldrick, CEO of Deep Root Roots Analytics, a media analytics company, former managing director at FTI Consulting, a former staffer for the Romney for President campaign, and a former vice president at Edelman Communications who speaks about giving the American people a seat at the table where decisions are made, whether the corporate uh, business table, whether it be the halls of government, uh, the governor's mansion. Brent seeks to really determine what drives us in a way that it sounds like some of us may not even know. He speaks about what we expect, what we want, and then what what we say we want. He speaks about a difference between uh, opinion about opinion research and then behavioral research about based upon the actions that we've actually taken. He uses big data to determine uh, how companies and 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 government entities, so how capitalism and de- democracy, can become more responsive to the everyman. Um, having been inspired by a Democratic pollster and having been uh, trained under the tutelage of a Republican pollster, Brent brings to the table a sense of what is possible if you take the conversation and frame it within you know, the broader population that any product or policy is meant to serve. And so he seeks to advance the public interest by connecting values, by translating and crafting narratives, executing and, 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 and advising on resource allocation on how it is that we can really uh, connect value sets with issue positions, whether it be internal uh, policy directives in a corporation or a larger national policy set. So Brent, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And this has been episode 160 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. i remind you to subscribe at publicinterestpodcast.com. Listen on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And should you wish to speak to Brent, you can call 240-630-0380, and that message will be communicated to him. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.